2: I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of maybe you should talk to someone. And I write the dear therapist advice column for the Atlantic.
3: And I'm Guy Winch. I'm the author of emotional first aid, and I write the dear guy advice column for Ted. And this is dear therapists.
2: Each week we invite you into a real session where we help people confront their biggest problems and then give them actionable advice and hear about the changes they've made in their lives.
3: So sit back and welcome to today's session.
2: This week, A young woman who's now with a healthy partner still carries scars from an abusive relationship she had years ago.
4: Like, I'm just ashamed of the whole situation. I don't want to talk about how I had an abusive partner for three years of my life. I want to forget about it on the outside, but on the inside, I can't forget about it.
3: First, a quick note. Dear Therapists, is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical or psychological advice, and is not a substitute for professional healthcare advice, diagnosis, or treatment. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and clarity. In the sessions, you'll hear all names have been changed for the privacy of our guests. Hi, Guy. Hi, Lori.
2: So what do we have in our mailbox today?
3: Today we have a letter from a woman who is still processing the fallout of a relationship she had several years ago. And here it is. Dear therapists, it has been over five years since I ended a toxic and emotionally abusive relationship, which I was in for approximately three and a half years. The reason I'm writing to you both is because at 27 years old, I still currently experience intrusive thoughts and tend to relive parts of this relationship over and over again in my head. There seems to be no escape from this man, even after all of these years. The effects of this relationship affect me in multiple ways. First, I have such anger towards myself for participating in this relationship for as long as I did. I tried to leave multiple times, but my ex had such power over me that he always found a way to suck me back in. My ex-boyfriend is a painful and loud reminder that this is what happens when you don't love yourself. Through work and therapy, I learned to develop self-compassion towards myself for how I ended up in this relationship and why I stayed for as long as I did, but I still grieve for this younger version of myself. Secondly, after this relationship, I continued to pursue emotionally unavailable men and to no surprise, got my heart broken more than once. It's as if I learned nothing from my ex. And lastly, in the years after the relationship ended, I stayed in a toxic job that broke my spirits and got me to gain 30 pounds. I had zero boundaries. I would spread myself thin to accommodate others. Please help me make peace with this situation. I'm too embarrassed to speak with friends and family about how I'm feeling. Thank you, Kayla.
2: What struck me most about Kayla's letter is that she said that she's 27 years old and doing the math, it sounds like she was about 19 when she got into that relationship that still haunts her. and. It's interesting because I think when we're younger, often we don't know a lot about boundaries, but she still hasn't forgiven herself for this relationship that started when she was basically a teenager. And I'll be curious to hear why it's been so hard for her to let go of that and to have the self-compassion that she is trying to work on.
3: Sounds like she's done a lot of work on herself, yet she's saying that nothing really has changed enough. So that's something we have to find out. She does seem to have a lot of insight, yet not a lot of changes happening. Let's go find
2: out where she's stuck. Yeah, let's do that. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a short break.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. help.com slash Deartherapists.
0: More
2: info now. I'm Lori Gottlieb.
3: And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists.
4: Hi, Kayla. Hi, Lori. Hey, Guy. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
3: You are very, very welcome.
2: We read your letter and we wanted to hear a little bit first about what's been going on with your dating life more recently.
4: So, this might come as a bit of a shock, uh, seeing I wrote the letter. However, I'm actually engaged to a wonderful man. And the reason why I say you might be shocked is because the letter, you know, I feel like when I wrote it, it seems like I have a lot of unresolved trauma from the past. But my fiance is a wonderful man. It's just the past that I can't seem to reconcile with.
2: So, I think you wrote to us fairly recently. Tell us how long ago you met this man and how long you've been engaged
4: yes yeah, so i recently got engaged about 2 months ago and we've been dating for about 2 years
2: so when you wrote to us and you were saying that you had this pattern of still choosing unavailable men you were engaged or you were with this man when you wrote to us yes not engaged you were saying you have this problem going after unavailable men but you'd been in a Relatively long relationship with an available man.
4: Yes. And it was very weird at first. I wasn't even sure I wanted to be with someone like him. Maybe he was too available.
2: What I mean is, it sounded from the letter like you had been through this pattern for the last five years of continually dating unavailable men. When you were writing us that letter, why do you think you left out the fact that? you happen to be in a relationship with an available man?
4: I think I still feel a lot of shame for a lot of my past decisions. And I do feel like a fraud sometimes in my current relationship. So I think while, yes, I am in a happy relationship, I do also feel like maybe not deserving of the relationship.
3: Does the fact that you left out that detail reflect also how you think about yourself? In other words, it's been five years, you've done all this work in therapy, you're actually engaged to a good, emotionally available man at the moment. Do you still think of yourself as the woman who was in the toxic relationship, despite the fact that you've been in a good relationship for two years?
4: Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on about how I view myself.
3: So reality has moved on or changed, but your self-perception hasn't updated with it.
4: Yeah, definitely.
2: Can you tell us how the feelings that you're carrying around from the earlier relationship play out in the current relationship?
4: Yes. So early on in the relationship, it was very weird to me to have a man that was texting me every day wanting to spend time with me. So those were things that freaked me out in the beginning. But I will say, like, as we would start dating, I noticed that sometimes when, you know, he would make like a small comment, like, oh, I miss you, or I haven't seen you in a long time. I would have panic attacks and I would start apologizing profusely. Like, I'm so sorry. I feel like such a horrible girlfriend.
2: That's how you interpreted him saying, I miss you?
4: I saw it as something like, you never make time for me. That's how I viewed it because that's how it was with my ex-boyfriend, Jay. But with my current fiance, it's very different. Another example. So we lived together recently and I tend to keep dishes in the sink sometimes. And last week he was making a joke. Oh look, Kayla leaving You know her dishes in the sink again. And I just jerked up from the couch and I was like, oh my gosh, I'll clean this up right away. I'm so sorry. And he even said like, relax, I was just busting your chops. So I think I was so scared of my ex-boyfriend, Jay, that that fear still controls me in my current relationship.
3: Does he make the connection in his own head between, oh, she's reacting strongly because of her ex.
4: We've had a little bit of discussions of my previous relationship. I experienced a lot of shame, so I maybe didn't tell him a lot of things because I didn't want him to look at me differently. I didn't want him to say like, why, why would Kayla choose a man like that? What's wrong with her? Even though I don't believe deep down, that's what he would think. I just, choose just not to say certain things that have happened, but he definitely knows that I was in a very toxic relationship. I didn't say to him that it it was abusive. I just said it was toxic.
2: I think what's interesting is that you thought he might say, what's wrong with her, that she was in that relationship. But I think that's what you say to yourself. And that's so common with people who have been in abusive relationships. They think something is wrong with them. And so I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what actually went on in that relationship.
4: So the relationship spanned about three years. It was sort of in like two phases, if you will. The first year and a half was us trying to figure out what we were. The second year and a half was when we were actually in a relationship. We had met in college. We would flirt. And when we would see each other at parties, we would sometimes kiss when we saw each other at the bar, but nothing ever progressed from there. And right before he was about to graduate, I was a few years younger than him. He told me that he cared about me. And I realized that I had feelings for him as well. I realized right after he said those words that that's all they were. They were just words. There was no actions to back him up. Because that weekend after he told me he cared about me, I went to the bar and he was making out with another girl right in front of me. But we continue to play this game of him pretending he didn't want me, me pretending I didn't care when I really did. So we hung out that entire summer. He didn't want to do long distance when I was going back to school. And I would say that year that I went back to school without him, I was a barely functioning. I was completely heartbroken. My grades were falling. I couldn't even get out of bed. My drinking was sort of out of control. I think I was coping with the loss of this man by partying too hard. And then when I came back home for the summer, he reached out again and was like, let's get back together. And I didn't even fight him. I was just like, yeah, let's get back together, even though he had completely broken my heart.
3: So that first section, you weren't actually together. Was there a period there where you were actually together?
4: The summer after he had graduated, and this is right before my junior year of college, we were hanging out all the time. And I fell in love with him, which now I see it wasn't love, I almost describe him like he was a drug. When he wouldn't text me, I physically felt sick. And then when he would text me, I felt like I was on top of the world. But after every time I hung out with him, I always felt this sense of emptiness and loneliness. And I couldn't really pinpoint why I felt that way.
2: You said you felt empty after you hung out with him. And at the same time, you said you fell in love with him. What did it mean to be in love with him? What did you love about him?
4: He was very popular at my college, but he was known for being a player. He was one of, in my opinion, one of the most attractive men at the school. And he always had girls like pining over him. So I think when got to the point where he told me he cared about me, I almost felt like I won something. I won like this prize of this, of like the most attractive, most popular man at college.
3: So he's saying it was like winning a prize because for you to be with this popular, handsome guy kind of elevated your status in other people's eyes, but probably mostly in your own. Were you aware that you were kind of tethering your self-esteem a little bit to him?
4: Definitely, because there were times that summer that I had tried to end things with him because I really felt like I wasn't getting what I deserved or needed. But then he would always come back and say, no, I'll fight for you. And I believed those words, but those words were always empty with no actions to back them up it kept going on like that for quite a while.
3: What internal dialogue did you have about trying to get yourself to not capitulate when he came and said, no, I'll fight for you. You're the one. And was there an internal fight about like, no, I shouldn't. Or was it just like, okay, good, let's, let's do it.
4: I think part of me wanted him to fight for me. So when I got that, those words from him, again, I felt that high, like I took a drug. So I, I really didn't push back when he would, you know, fight for me, and even like from the point where I actually broke up with him, you know, years later, he did try to fight for me again, and that time I was actually done. But at the time, like, I knew it was bad, but I almost couldn't help myself, and I feel a lot of shame around that currently.
3: I'm not sure if you were aware, but the science of heartbreak is quite clear that what happens in our brain when we're heartbroken is very similar to what happens in our brain when opioid addicts are withdrawing from heroin. In other words, you said drug, and our brain absolutely regards it as a drug, and like heroin in the sense that you feel desperate to just get a fix, to just get him back, to just be in touch, and you feel pointless without him. The drug is the answer. To everything. Nothing else matters when you're highly, highly addicted and everything gets devastated when you are withdrawing from strong opioids. And that's exactly what you're describing. There's a big part of you that does feel a lot of shame. And I'm saying that because this is one of the most remarkable findings about this brain science and heartbreak, that we are driven to do things like heroin addicts are when they're withdrawing. When heroin addicts are withdrawing, that makes sense. We don't know that with heartbreak. And so it didn't make sense to you. It's the same dynamic. And that's why it was so hard to resist.
4: That's really good to know. I suspected it was like a drug, but I didn't know there was actually science to back that up.
2: How did you eventually decide that you were going to go to rehab, let's say, by breaking up with him?
4: So I remember this day so very clearly. He refused to come to anything that pertained to, like, family or friends events. And when he was around my parents, he was just—you could just tell he was very uncomfortable. So he picked a fight with me a few days before Christmas. And I knew he did that because he didn't want to come to Christmas. He knew I was going to beg him. So at Christmas, when everyone was asking me, like, oh, hey, where's Jay? I was like, we broke up. And at that point, we actually hadn't. But I was telling everyone that because I I knew my decision was made. That was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And the next day I went over to his house and I broke up with him. And for all the times he watched me cry, he was the one finally crying. And I wasn't actively happy to see him cry, but I sort of had the mindset like, you know, cry me a river after what you had put me through. He was just like watching him on his hands and knees begging for forgiveness. And I just said to him, I don't want to be with you anymore. I felt so empowered in that moment. And I walked away and he still was following me to my car, trying to win me back. And I said, get out of my face. So it definitely didn't end well, but I was just proud that For once, I really stood off for myself.
2: What was it about that straw that broke the camel's back? Because it sounds like he had done things like that throughout your time together, sending these very mixed messages of come close, no go away, come close, go away. And then there's this one incident that sounds not that different from the other things that went on. What was it about that one?
4: I think part of me was scared of him. Again, he was never physical with me, but I was scared of him in the sense that, you know, he was always yelling at me. So I I definitely think at that point, I was tr- walking on eggshells around him, was was afraid of him. So I think I did know I wanted to break up with him. I just didn't know how because I think I still was afraid of him.
2: During the relationship. Were you ever able to say to him, hey, I didn't like when you did that?
4: I definitely did. At first, when we were like officially dating now, I wouldn't stand up for myself. Every time he came to visit me at school, we always got into a fight. He was always mad about something. And I always just apologized to him and begged for his forgiveness. And there was actually a specific incident that happened where one of my friends was also visiting me that weekend with him. I think it was my birthday weekend. And I just remember fighting between the two of us and it was just awful. And the next day, my friend had like pulled me aside and she said, "You know, Kayla, I'm really worried. Like he just started yelling at you out of nowhere." She said, "I was with you the whole night. You did absolutely nothing wrong." And she Wasn't like, oh, break up with him. But she expressed a lot of concern about that kind of behavior. So I think after that sort of the dynamic switched where I started to challenge him because I think it felt good to have a friend tell me I wasn't crazy because I legitimately thought I was the problem in the relationship.
3: You know, you mentioned that you felt a lot of and still feel a lot of shame about the relationship and that you didn't really talk to friends much about it. But after that experience, when a friend actually just sees something, and a good friend she is to come up to you and say, I'm worried, without going too much further than I'm worried, I think she handled that really well. Why did that not make you feel more comfortable, even with this one friend, being more open about what was going on or sharing some of the dilemmas or the painful moments? Why did you still keep that to yourself when here's one friend who sees there's something going on and is clearly supportive.
4: I think I didn't share because I knew what everyone was gonna say. I think I knew people were gonna tell me to leave him. And I don't think I was ready at that point.
3: It's interesting, Kayla, because in fact, the friend you pointed out very specifically in that first comment was, I'm worried for you. And you specifically said, she didn't tell me I should leave or anything. It was your own fear that if I tell them and I am open with them and I hear my own mouth say these things about him, I'll think I really have to leave rather than they'll think I really have to leave.
4: Yeah,
2: definitely. And that makes me wonder a little bit if you have any ideas now in retrospect about what do you think it was that made you continue to stay in a relationship where that behavior was going on?
4: They think my childhood was not that great in the sense that in school, I was the weird girl. I was the girl that didn't have any friends. I struggled academically up until I got to high school. And I also wasn't athletic. So I think from a social aspect I didn't have that much confidence because I was that weird girl. So I think that's why I was even more attracted to him at first, because here I was getting attention from the popular kid, which was something I think my inner child desired.
3: What made you weird, exactly?
4: I was one of the youngest kids in my grade, and I just struggled academically. Looking back, I just believe that I was physically and emotionally immature, and my parents are blue-collar workers, so I think, you know, while they were very physically present, they didn't really know how to help me academically, so I would always, like, bring home, like, failed tests, and they would just yell at me to get better grades, but never actually helping me to. Teachers, like, told my parents I should be in special education classes, So that only further made me think low of myself, but I just didn't really have the right resources available to me. And it was funny, by the time I got to high school, I started to get straight A's. And I think the reason I'm such an overachiever now is because of that feeling like I have to prove something. That inner child, I still think, hurts or grieves like the life that she thought she should have had. It was definitely rough.
2: In your letter, you talked about grieving this time in your life that you spent with Jay, but what you're talking about now is grieving those years of childhood long before you met Jay, when you were so isolated, so alone, weren't really seen in the way that you needed to be seen. And I think this grief piece is really important because when we're trying to process a loss, Sometimes what we do is we confuse one loss with another loss. And because you had had that experience in childhood, and then you had this experience of a not very good relationship in your late teens, early 20s, you're still, you say in your letter, grieving this period of your life that you wish had gone differently. And I I wonder if you would feel that same way about the Jay relationship if you hadn't also been grieving the losses that you experienced in childhood.
4: Yeah, I I do wonder that sometimes, but it it definitely feels lonely because I I feel like sometimes I, I can't really talk about it with anyone.
2: Because what do you imagine would happen?
4: I just think... You know my family and friends have been like worried about me probably up until like a few years ago and i I just feel like I need to present like this stable person at this point, so I sort of suppress a lot of what I'm feeling or I'll tell my therapist, but it definitely feels lonely. I want to forget about it on the outside, but on the inside, I can't forget about it.
2: Do your parents know you said that your friends would notice some of Jay's behavior. Did your parents ever say, we're worried about this?
4: They never said anything. Re- like recently with like in the last couple of years, they've said like, you know, we didn't know it was this bad. You hid a lot from us. But they said we knew the relationship wasn't good. They didn't realize it was abusive.
2: And how did they find out that it was abusive if you weren't Talking
4: about it. My sister had told them there was one night I had a complete mental breakdown about this. After the relationship ended? Yeah. After I had pursued one of these emotionally unavailable guys, once that happened, I sort of was like crying over that guy as well as Jay. And like my parents, like sometimes would joke about my ex Jay. And I think when they were joking one time, my sister said, like, you don't, you can't joke about that relationship. You don't realize how bad it was. And I think my parents were floored. She just was trying to get like my parents to realize that they failed me in a sense. Like At least that's my sister told my parents. That's her opinion. <laughs>
2: what does your sister think your parents should have done? Or what do you think they should have done given that they didn't know what was going on?
4: Like I said, my parents, blue collar workers, they, we didn't have the most money growing up, but they really worked very hard to give us a good life. And as much as I love them, I think growing up, their focus was always on what looks good on paper. The message me and my sister received when we were going to college, like you need to pick a major that is going to, you're going to make six figures right at, right out of school. You cannot major in education. You're not going to get a job as a teacher. The keeping me in sports growing up when I wasn't good at them. And that sort of like ruined my self-confidence because when you're, you know, an 11 year old girl, you compare yourself to your peers. And, you know, me and my sister used to cry and beg our parents, you know, please let us quit the sport. Please let us quit this club. And it was always like, no, you have to do everything you can do to like make your resume look good. So, I think my sister, you know, felt like my parents failed me in the sense that they never cared about my happiness.
2: That you didn't have the tools to really listen to what you wanted or desired because you didn't have practice with
4: that. Yeah, like everything I would like come to my parents with was always dismissed. You know, something as silly as wanting to quit softball. I would have so much anxiety going to practice. I used to cry in the bathroom because I didn't want to play it and I would cry to my parents and it was just sort of like too bad. So I think I just learned to do things that I didn't want to do in life. Learned to stay in jobs too long, stay in relationships longer than I wanted to.
2: You said that your parents are really concerned about you getting a job where you made a lot of money right out of college and that things looked a certain way. Did you end up choosing a career based on what they wanted?
4: A hundred percent. I was always good at math in high school because I had sort of dealt with a lot of depression and anxiety. I actually wanted to major in psychology. I wanted to become like a therapist because I said I wanted to help people like me and I was told like, no, you're going to need to go to grad school for that major. It was basically like, you're good at math. So just do something in business. So I chose finance and it definitely didn't belong in that major. I think a lot of the reasons why I even stayed in my relationship with Jay is because I was very unhappy in college, forcing something that wasn't meant for me. And he was my only source of happiness, really, at the time. I mean, he wasn't happiness for me, but that was my only crutch.
2: Let's call it an escape.
4: Yeah. And even the message, like, you have to get a job at a big bank. And that job was also one of the worst experiences of my life. I don't actively blame my parents anymore. I see them for who they are with their own issues. I just wished they would have listened to me. I wish I would have had the insight to like, you know, go to college and choose my own major. Or at least I wish I could have dual majored in psychology. I wish I would have done something for myself. But the message was so ingrained in me that life is hard and you just have to accept it for what it is.
2: Have you ever told them? that you feel this way?
4: Yes. They harbor a lot of guilt. My parents were actually paying recently for my therapy and I didn't ask them to. I think they just feel so bad for what had happened. And they've seen me have, you know, a ton of mental breakdowns over my job. So I I think knowing that they're sorry helped me forgive them a little bit
2: and not just being sorry but knowing that they can actually see you yeah
3: Kayla you said your sister the one that told your parents about what was going on with Jay and your sister's the one that got through to them about this stuff as well do you have a relationship now where you don't need your sister if something is going on if there's something you wanted to bring up you feel comfortable doing it in a way that they can hear and respond to?
4: Luckily, yes. It took me a long time to get there, but I have really strong boundaries with my parents and they respect them. For example, my mother, she knows when she comments on my clothes. I know it's very trivial, but if she comments on my parents, she knows I'm gonna flip out on her. Which probably isn't the mature thing to do, but I've gone into a place where my boundaries are my boundaries, and uh, and I'm really proud of the boundaries I have with my parents. And I think because they respect my boundaries, I can have a good relationship with them.
2: I'm wondering if the timing of having boundaries with your parents and having them really see you coincides with not going after unavailable men anymore and meeting your fiance.
4: So I think some of the men. Well, two of them were divorced and they were only divorced for a month. So I think that should have been my first red flag that maybe they weren't ready to be in a relationship. I think after, you know, dating some men like this, I had rules for myself. One of them was something as silly as they couldn't add me on social media unless they were serious about being serious with me. I try to look at everything and say like, okay, they may have messed up, but where did I fail to see the red flags? What did I just sweep under the rug that shouldn't have been?
2: So it sounds like you were learning from these relationships with people who weren't available or weren't wanting what you were wanting at the same time. But in your letter, you present it as if you're just not learning anything. You said something like, I've learned nothing from this. And yet, You were starting to set boundaries. You were coming up with, what are my limits? You were looking at yourself and saying, what is my role in this? And then you started to have a different relationship with your parents. And you also met your fiance. So help us understand your perception from your letter that nothing has changed to, I met this guy and I'm in this really different relationship than I've ever been in.
4: I still see myself as this helpless young child. As proud as I am of the strides I've made, as as happy as I am with my fiance, I still am scared that I can't trust myself. I'm even scared to be a thousand percent happy with my fiance because I'm scared that I'm just gonna keep making mistakes.
3: Can you just clarify what mistakes you could make with your fiance right now?
4: For example, I'm scared to want a baby. And the reason why I'm scared to want a baby is because I convinced myself that I'm infertile. Even though I go to the doctors yearly, there's nothing wrong with me. But I'm just convinced that I can't have what other people have. And I'm even like scared to plan a wedding because I'm just... I'm just like, it's going to rain. Something's going to happen. I'm just like, oh, like, let me just elope so that I don't have expectations. I sort of self-sabotage to manage so-called foreseeable failure.
2: So desire is dangerous. Yes. Because the other shoe could easily drop.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So that's why sometimes I feel like a fraud. My fiancé adores me and I'm like, what do you adore? He's never given me a reason not to trust him or every day he shows me that he loves me in some capacity.
2: What do you love about him?
4: I love that he's always there for me. Besides the fact that he's very physically attractive, at least to me his comfort to me is everything. His friendship to me is everything. He's a very sensitive guy and that's very different than anyone I've ever dated. His emotions are on his sleeve and I never have to guess what he's thinking. He he surprises me with flowers all the time or he'll cook for me and he'll say like, you know, I made this meal with love. Just a lot of little things that I really have grown to appreciate about him.
2: So you were talking about how cared for you feel by your fiance. And at the same time, you're afraid to really talk to him about some of your experiences that still live inside of you. What do you think makes for that disconnect between I really trust this person and I really feel cared for. And I also don't want to open up to him? Is that the other shoe's going to drop? And if so, how might it drop?
4: I don't think he would leave me or anything if I did open up. I really think it's rooted back in the shame I still feel from the experience. I want to present that things are peachy when in reality, there's turmoil inside. I think it's really just the vulnerability of opening up to such rough subjects, to dark times in my life.
3: You have shame about the relationship with Jay, but do you also have shame specifically about your elementary school experiences?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, what are what are people going to say if I'm like, oh, you know, I was a loser in elementary school? And, and I know that's dramatic. I know it's not that dark, but, you know, it scares me.
2: I notice how much you downplay. Your experiences. Earlier in our conversation, you said about a boundary that you were setting. This might sound silly when it was not a silly boundary at all. It was a very valid boundary to set. And now you're saying you're being dramatic by talking about what sounds like a very lonely and painful time in your childhood. You said after the J relationship that they have to be emotionally available, they have to be stable. And you have this partner who seems to be that. But you don't seem to want to be emotionally available in your upcoming marriage. What do you think will happen if you continue to hide like this?
4: I mean, worst case, a divorce. Obviously, that's not something I would ever want. But I understand what you're saying, Lori. We did have kids. If I'm going to do what my parents did my kids and and invalidate their emotions that, you know, that terrifies me to even have kids and know, like, what if I screw them up the way my parents screwed me up? You know, what if I invalidate their emotions or their needs? Or, you know, if I have kids, what if I try to give them the life that I always wanted but never had and force them to do things they don't want to do?
2: First of all, it sounds like you're so aware of these things. In a way that parents who do do those things to their kids maybe aren't so aware that they're doing it. But also, you went away from my question. And I bring that up because, again, we're talking about the emotional intimacy with your fiance. And when I go there, you go to a different worry. So if we can sit for a second and think about that and see what happens in your body as that question. Goes through you. You imagine being emotionally available to him. What do you imagine it will feel like to be with this person who really cares about you, but then you stay closed off in certain ways? So you're kind of unknowable. He doesn't really get to know you. And in, in certain ways, you won't really get to know him.
4: Feels like really unfair to him and to myself.
2: How does it feel unfair to you?
4: Because I deserve to make peace and I deserve to express myself and I I just keep denying myself that. And it's only going to just further confirm to myself this belief that I'm not worthy. It's a cruel form of self-sabotage.
2: It's self-sabotage in the name of self-protection, except that it doesn't actually protect you. It leaves you more vulnerable to things going wrong.
4: Yeah.
3: What I'm hearing from you is that there is a way in which you actually really don't feel worthy because you still feel in part and too much like the weirdo kid, the loser as you represent it, and you still have so much shame around Jay, and I think what's preventing you from opening up and being emotionally available to your fiance and to other people in your life, perhaps, is that there is very, very little self-compassion in all those formulations. You are viewing yourself through the eyes of a young girl that was really suffering and really having a hard time till you can start thinking of your history and of yourself with much, much more self-compassion. It's gonna be very hard for you to open up. Yeah.
2: You said that your finance job made you miserable. Have you made a change since that job?
4: Yeah, I quit. It was sort of another moment similar to when I broke up with Jay, where I felt very empowered. Within like two months, I literally lost like 25 pounds. Like just the stress just evaporated from my body. That's how much stress I was holding in to my body from that job. And it just left. I didn't even like change my diet. And everyone was like, you just look like a different person. And I think once I left that job, that was suffocating to me is when I really decided that things needed to change and. I almost can thank my fiance a little bit for that because he has a job that he loves and he almost inspired me to seek different for myself.
2: So are you pursuing something that excites you?
4: I took a different job at a much smaller firm and I've been there for like a year and a half now. I am still like in the sort of the finance world, but I'm working nine to five, which is just amazing. My priority has been trying to fix myself,
2: if you will. or Can we say maybe trying to heal myself?
4: Yeah. My priority has been to heal myself. I'm, you know, in therapy. I'm reading books again, which is something I haven't done in years. I have, you know, dabbled in yoga a little bit. So I I think my career is sort of on a back burner right now because I'm trying to fix these other areas of my life first.
2: And where in all of this is your interest in psychology and your desire to become a therapist?
4: I mean, I still think I would love to be one. I know I could do it if I really wanted to. So sort of like I do in other areas of my life, I kind of keep my life small or I stay in this limbo to protect myself.
2: Does your fiance
4: know about that desire? He does. And he said, like, if you want to do it, you know, I'll support you. But I'm scared to shake things up in my life because right now I feel a lot better, but I'm scared to be too happy and I'm scared to be too depressed. So I keep myself in a limbo area.
2: It's interesting that you're afraid to feel too happy and you're afraid to go spiraling down into depression. So you want to stay in this kind of safe middle. But, but the problem with that is that you don't really feel. Yeah. So I think there's something in between depression and just not feeling great that day. But for you, it's like, it's either going to be really great or really awful, kind of like it was with Jay, you know? things are great. He called me, he wants me, or things are terrible. He's ignoring me or he's treating me poorly. And so your idea to solve that problem is to just kind of stay in the safe middle. And what I want to suggest is that if you mute one feeling, you mute the others. And so you're so afraid of feeling joy that you're muting some of the pain. And you're so afraid of going into the pain that you're muting the joy. And so you're not really kind of alive in your emotional world. And you again have this all or nothing idea that, well, I'd have to kind of drop everything and do a psychology program when I don't know if I'm committed as opposed to maybe I'll just take a class in psychology, just one, and see if I like it. Yeah.
3: I wanted to ask you, Kayla, in the therapy that you've had, has the topic of anxiety
4: come up? No, I was was always very focused on the depression part of myself, or I thought that was the most urgent thing that needed to be addressed. We never really got to the anxiety part.
3: I'm asking because I hear an undercurrent of anxiety in almost everything that you're talking about. By definition, anxiety is a fear of an unspecified, non-immediate, vague kind of dread that something bad will happen. It's not an articulated what that bad might be. It's not something that's looming this second, but it might happen later or tomorrow or next week. And that feeling of dread is the thing that people interpret sometimes as fear. But one of the biggest responses people have to anxiety is avoidance. They avoid the things that make them anxious. And you have a pattern of avoidance in your life, the avoiding getting too close to people by sharing truly what's going on, avoiding going after the things you really, really want, avoiding experiencing the joy which you know is there to be had in certain areas because then what if I get blindsided and something goes wrong? And there's no indication anything going wrong in your relationship with your fiance. Does that resonate with you in any way that there's this undercurrent of anxiety that's been going on in your life as well?
4: Spot on. It's even funny. I'm I'm like trying to convince my fiance that I don't want to have a bridal party because I don't even want to like offend people by not like choosing them as bridesmaids. My go-to is just to avoid even having a a bridal party. So it's interesting you bring that up because it manifests so many different ways in my life.
3: And it's important to label it anxiety because if you don't label it anxiety, then you start coming up with rationales for it and justifying them. So what I'm saying is that I want you to note this idea of calling things anxiety when it fits that pattern, because then you at least know, no, that's not necessarily a real danger. That's anxiety.
4: I think I've been focused on depression as the driver that I neglected to see, you know, anxiety in the passenger seat.
2: You did that with the kids too, that I'm afraid to have kids because I might do things to them that would repeat what my parents did with me. I'm afraid to entertain the idea of psychology because I don't know if I'm committed to it yet. There's a reason for everything that you come up with. But underneath that, what happens is, and you've used this word several times today self sabotage in the name of self protection when it doesn't actually protect you, does not keep you safe. It keeps you on high alert, as Guy was saying. That's the anxiety. You're always on high alert. And it, you come by that honestly. You've, you've had experiences that, that might have taught you that you need to be, except now you're in a different situation. You don't need to be in high alert around those things anymore.
3: And the last thing about anxiety is it's exhausting because you have to do these mental gymnastics and these accountings and these rationales and explaining and avoiding. It just keeps you very busy.
2: And the other function of it is that while you're spinning in your head, you don't really have room to connect with your fiance, maybe with your friends, maybe with yourself in the ways that I think would create a much richer experience
4: for you. Yeah, I agree.
3: So Kayla, we have some advice for you. Here's the first part. As I said, I was concerned that you are very self-critical and that you need to improve your self-compassion skills and practice. What we'd like you to do is we'd like you to make a list of the 10 greatest self-critical hits that play out in your head. Things like, I was a weirdo, or it's shameful that I stayed in a relationship that was abusive, what's wrong with me. Whatever the narratives are, write out the full sentences of the really harsh statements that you make for yourself. So make that list of 10. And then for each one, present the self-compassionate option. The self-compassionate option for I was a weirdo in school was I was depressed and I felt very alone and I didn't have anyone to talk to. And I didn't connect with people. And I was really unhappy. Again, self-compassion is about how you would talk to a friend or what somebody who really cared about you, how they would frame that rather than the self-critical way. So that's what we'd like you to do. 10 of the most self-critical statements and then 10 self-compassionate takes on those exact same statements.
2: And we think that will help with the next part of the assignment, which is when you can have a little more self-compassion for yourself you might be able to start to connect with other people in a deeper way. And we want you to start with your fiance. We would like you to talk to him about some of the things that you haven't shared with him yet. For example, when that thing happened where he said he was joking about you left the dishes in the sink and you, you immediately got up and said, oh, I'll take care of that right away. You said he sort of understands where that comes from, yeah, but not completely. We would like you to tell him that you have been holding back a little bit because you have a lot of shame around some parts of your life that happened before you met him. And that as you start this marriage together, you really want to practice being more connected and open. And you value so much how much he cares for you and the trust that you have with him, and so you want to share with him something that feels very delicate to you. And then tell him a little bit about your childhood and what that was like, what you shared with us today, and maybe tell him a little bit about how much shame you have around staying with this person in your early 20s that still haunts you today and that you're really working on that, but you just want him to know that it's there. Because you want to get closer with him. Share with us what it felt like to share this with him. And then also how he responded to you. And then the third thing we'd like you to do is that we noticed, again, that you are a master of coming up with reasons that you can't do or have the things that you want. And you talked about how much you would have liked to have pursued psychology or at least explored it if finance was not the mandate in your household. And so we want you to really have the space to explore that. And that doesn't mean you have to commit to a graduate program when you have no idea if you really want to do this yet. But what we'd like you to do is to take a class. We want you to sign up for a psychology class. There's probably one at your local community college. There might be one online. It might be more fun if you go in person. But as you're doing your yoga and your therapy and all of the other things you're doing to heal, we'd like you to invest a little bit of time in your joy. And what you can learn from this experience is you might say, oh, you know what? I don't actually like that after all, but it inspires me to think about what I might enjoy more than finance. Maybe it's not psychology. Or you might say, I really love this. I might want to take a second class, or I might want to get some brochures about graduate school, or whatever it is. But either way, it will give you some useful information that is coming from your desires, your wishes, and not some external mandate that you've been living with for a very long time. So you want to give some space to your desires.
3: One last thing. We were thinking also about the anxiety that you have, especially around experiencing joy. So we would like this week you to catch, if possible, five times that you are thinking about things that could bring you joy in a way that's full of dread and avoidance. For example, how can I have a bridal shower? I'll alienate one of my friends, so I can't do that. You have that thought. All you need to do is go, okay, that's an anxious thought. That's not a realistic concern. That's anxiety or I can't have kids because I might end up hurting them in some way as a parent, so let's just avoid having kids altogether. Any one of those things that comes up that are things that could bring you joy or pleasure and the dread comes up about them, just to label them anxiety. This is my anxiety around joy. We want you to do in that way so that when you have anxiety around joy and you take it less seriously as a threat and more like, Here's me doing this anxiety around joy thing. And so that's why we want you to catch it as much as possible this week.
4: Okay, it sounds really good. I didn't really realize to an extent that it was almost controlling my life. So even just recognizing that already just makes me feel a lot better and a little hopeful. So I'm definitely excited to do these tasks that you both mentioned.
2: Well, we're very excited for you to try these things this week, and we look forward to hearing how it goes.
4: Yeah. Thank you, Lori. Thank you guys so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure.
2: So I was really surprised when we started the session today, and the first thing Kayla told us was that she not only was engaged, but had been dating this very seemingly emotionally available man for two years. And it seemed so strange before we got to know her, but once we started unpacking some of this, it actually made sense that it is so terrifying for her to even voice something good in her life that she just pushes it down. She couldn't tell us this good thing had happened in her life. She couldn't write it down until we actually were in session and she had to tell us so that we could do the session with her.
3: Right. It was really difficult for her to add that in her letter and say, oh, but things are good in this area because she has so much anxiety and dread about that going south at some point.
2: The going south part is the part that really trips her up, that I can't hold too tightly onto the things that bring me joy because something will go wrong. I can't think about having kids because I might repeat the patterns of my parents. I can't think about my bridal shower, even though that might be really fun because I might offend someone. I can't think about this career that I might want to have because I'm supposed to do finance. And it's interesting that when you brought up anxiety, that seemed to really resonate with her, that she hadn't thought about it that way. And that's so common. I think for anybody listening, this idea that when we're spinning around something or we're perseverating on something and we focus on something almost obsessively, that there's something else that we are afraid of. And when we get to that fear, it becomes much less scary. If we can just name the fear, the anxiety goes down.
3: I love, by the way, her phrasing of, I thought depression was driving this. I didn't realize anxiety was in the passenger seat. As you know, Lori, those two go on road trips together all the time. They're fast friends. Yes.
2: So we gave her a bunch of things to think about this week and to do this week. And I am really looking forward to hearing how that all goes for her. As am I.
3: You're listening to Dear Therapists. We'll be back after a short break.
1: Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
3: So Lori, we heard back from Kayla. Let's hear how she did this week.
5: Hey, Lori. Hey, Guy. It's Kayla. I'm here to talk about the task that you have both given me to complete over the past week. First one, Guy, maybe you wanted me to make a list of 10 self-critical hits with the self-compassion component. And I wanted to share one that I had written out. So the self-critical hit is I should have never gotten into a relationship with Jay. And the self-compassion component that I wrote out was, I have always felt like the outcast in society. Being with a popular guy like Jay gave me more confidence and made me believe I was worthy of love, even if it didn't work out. I think writing that out, I try to imagine myself like what my friend would say to me, but I really try to believe that it was something I would say to myself. So I, I definitely think this exercise really, really challenged me and enjoyed you know, sort of writing out the self-compassion components. You know, the second thing you had requested was to connect with my fiancé more. And I had talked to him about everything, including what it was like in elementary school for me and sort of more about what happened in the relationship with Jay. And to my surprise, but probably not to Lori or Guy's surprise, his response was sort of like, you know, I wish you had told me sooner we were able to have a conversation about it and I feel pretty good after sharing with him so I think it's something I'm going to continue going forward the third thing Lori I know you have requested that I sign up for a psychology class unfortunately I have not done that yet I just not something I can mentally get myself to do right now but I feel hopeful that it is something I I will do one day. So I just really want to thank you both for taking the time to speak with me, really put a lot of things into perspective and made me think about a lot of different things. So I hope you both take care.
2: So we give people a lot to do every week because we only have one session with them. And with the first two tasks that we gave Kayla, It sounds like she did beautifully. She got out of her shame and went into a place of compassion with some of the narratives that she had been carrying around. And she was able to talk to her fiancé and start to connect with him in a different way without hiding some of these parts of her past that felt so shameful to her. And I think that's all very positive, But when it came to the other two tasks around signing up for the psychology class and identifying her anxiety around joy, she seems to have struggled with those two.
3: And I want our listeners to understand that when we give these multi-component tasks, it's for a reason, because things are always connected. And so the idea of the psychology class was not, well, try psychology, was a symbolic way to step out of her parents' expectations and do the thing that she had trouble advocating for herself when she was younger. And the task around the anxiety around joy was an important task also to create a separation between the previous history that she had of really struggling with anxiety, but thinking that actually her desires and her wishes and her wants were problematic, like having children, as opposed to realizing that that was about anxiety. And they're all connected. So that first part of leaning into the engagement more and being more self-compassionate is something she did well. But I hope, Kayla, if you're listening to this, I would urge you to pick up those other two tasks and do them if you can, because they together with the first two, which we hope you'll keep working on, as you said, together will help you really change the old patterns that tend to be dominant in our lives when we've had them for many years. And we need a multi-pronged approach to really break out of them. And I hope if you can do all of those things, it would really help you move forward in a really substantial way. Next week, we're checking in with Doug, who struggled with a fear of intimacy after an emotionally scarring relationship, to hear how he's doing one year later. It's really hard for me to open up to him because every time in the past that I've opened up about my feelings, it's either been met with rejection or met with OCD. So it's really hard for me to trust that I can have a safe person to open up to.
2: If you're enjoying our podcast, Don't forget to subscribe for free so that you don't miss any episodes. And please help support Dear Therapist by telling your friends about it and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews really help people to find the show.
3: If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Noel Brown. We're produced and edited by Josh Fisher. Additional editing support by Helena Rosen, John Washington, and Zachary Fisher, our interns are Ben Bernstein, Emily Gutierrez, and Silver Lifton. And special thanks to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Curick. We can't wait to see you at our next session. Dear Therapists is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Fish food. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. That's better H-E-L-P.com.
0: More info now.